You only get into, out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. Do you regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today we're talking to Mark Joyce. Um, yeah, my name is Mark Joyce. I'm, I've been in full-time football for the last seven years in, in South Carolina, in America. Um, I suppose we should do this. Now, I'm going to use the word soccer a lot. So I don't know if you are all ready to have a little chuckle or you're playing a drinking <laughs> game at the same time, but you're just going to have to allow it. Um, so, yeah, I've been, I'm from the Whittle. Um, I had lived on the Whittle all my life um, prior to heading to America in 20, 2013. I'm joined today in person for the first time in many, many moons by Ryan Pulford. Ryan, it's, a, it's an honour to sit across you, even if at this sort of socially distanced space. Absolutely. In, um, in the house I've been renovating all these past few months, it's like when you um, you go to that ground that's being built that you never think will be get done. It's like a Bramley Mordor, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like we're walking around with high versus doing an interview just to keep the people happy. Uh, but yeah, um, good to see you. Yeah, brilliant, mate. Do you know what I think of whenever I see these mock-ups of mm. the Everton's new stadium yeah. is... Do you remember when we played Everton at Goodison? Yeah. When Sammy played Everton at Goodison in 2001? Was it 2001? Yes. Or 2000? 2000. I would have been 8-21. So yeah, 2000. So when uh, we won 3-0 at Goodison, I feel like oh, there were so many of them then. <laughs> but when we won 3-0 at Goodison, before the match, there was like an, a video that they played on the big screen, which was about the new stadium that they were going to build uh, then. Yeah. And all the Tramia fans, of which there were about 6,000 of us, were singing, it's never going to happen. Ruined the whole thing. It was like this massive presentation that they had in place for the game. And, they were just... and weren't we wrong? <laughs> and 20 years later... Oh, we're going to get battered by it for this, aren't we? By um, the Blues, we know. Yeah. The the new the new ground looks impressive. We'll yeah. say that. Yeah, it does, and it's in like quite an interesting area as well because it's kind of it's not quite in town, but it's close enough to town that it's great for match day. Yeah, great for the Titanic Hotel as well. <laughs> <laughs> basically, opposite it. Right, so we've got um, Mark Joyce on the uh, on the show today, which is a bit of a bit of a special one for us. A very dear friend of ours, Mark Joyce or Joycey, as he's uh, as he's known to us, and. Um, yeah, I think we were we were kind of keen to get Joyce on for a little while, weren't we? I think you were you were mm. pestering him via the uh, the WhatsApp medium. Um, he's got quite a, an interesting background in in coaching, which started out in sort of grassroots football on the Wirral with the uh, West Cheshire side. Uh, was it is it Bebbington Athletic? AFC Bebbington. AFC Beb, that's it. I should know. I did play for him. Um, but yeah, he started out at AFC Beb and then moved over to America, which we'll hear about and. We've been mates with Joycey for a long time and he speaks very well about the game and he's also a, a, a very nice chap as well. So he thought it would be an interesting one to get him on the show and, and have a little chat about coaching and you know about that transition over to America and some stuff about the sort of 
youth system in both countries that we've we've touched on before in some other interviews. So, yeah, certainly one to look forward to. And we always have a theme. Ryan, do you want to give the listeners today's theme? Yeah, so the theme is care, compassion and coaching outside of your comfort zone. Fantastic. And that's, that's our theme. If you pick up on anything that we haven't, then make sure that you email us at manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us. Uh, our account is at marking underscore man. And don't forget that hashtag, where's the talking lads? So we're going to hand you over to Mark and we'll see you on the other side. You're listening to Man Marking. Joyce, how did you get into coaching? Short version or long version? I'll take the long version. I'll try and I'll try and find a little in between. Um, I was I was never particularly good at football, and again, you you go to America, you have an accent. I think people assume you could play, and you have that kind of background. I've always been pretty. I've always been pretty honest with that, and I was never particularly good in terms of the lads that I grew up with were and the lads played at a decent level and I, I was never kind of at that level. Um, I, I like to use that kind of multi-sport excuse that I, I played a bit of rugby, I, play, I played a little bit of cricket, but I loved football. I just wasn't be, I wasn't able to kind of match it from a playing standpoint. Um, but I was, I was different. You know, I was, I was that, I was that kid at the match when everyone was kind of, Watching the play, I'd, I'd probably be having a little look over to the dugout at Brian Little and seeing who he was sending out to warm up and getting there early, watching the watching the warm ups. I'd always kind of enjoyed that side. I was playing football manager, and I'm sure you all did as well when we were younger. And um, but like really playing it and really getting into it. And I think I remember one night the milkman knocked at the door asking for his money. And I was still playing football manager when I heard him clanging the milk bottles. Fourteen hours later, I was I was that kind of <laughs> I was that kind of obsessed with it. So I'd always loved the game. I'd always obsessed in the game. Just playing wasn't the wasn't the route for me. And the the way in which I kind of got into the the coaching side or the kind of the managing side that we call it here was. My friends played at a at a West Cheshire club and they went from one team to two teams. So they added the reserve team. And all of a sudden I probably had enough ability to go and play with the reserves. I was I was fit at the time. I went and got involved and um I think I I think I got injured, but I, I wanted to stay involved. So I was there every week and I can't really remember what, what happened, but I, I eventually kind of became the like I said, the manager, as they call it. So I was, I was managing a West Cheshire two side and um, coaching adults, working with adults, which was a lot different to what I do these days. But that was kind of my routine. What was that like working with with adults straight away? Because I imagine um, some of these were, were were friends as well. Correct, and again. And again, you go back to the playing side. That you know, these are like you said, these are friends who probably look at me knowing, you know, it's difficult to go and talk to someone about football when they're probably looking at you, going, "Well, I'm a better player than you." And you know, where you know, you look at Mourinho, Wenger, those kind of managers that never particularly played. It's a, it's a conversation that comes up. So I don't know. I didn't really, 
I didn't really dwell on that. I think that if if people if people see that you care, if people see that you're working hard, um, and you're just trying to help them, I I, I think you'll your quality will go and shine through. And I do look back at some of the things I might have said and might have done back then in, in comparison to what I know now. But um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't overly difficult. It was just it was just new. It was good. And when you started your ambitions, were there any ambitions or was it just a bit of fun at the time? No, so just a bit of fun. And like I said, I just wanted to be involved. Um, but what I did do was I went on to start my coaching licenses. So I started to do my, my FA levels and my youth modules here in England. And I don't know if any of you have got involved in any of them that they're geared at coaching younger players. So that becomes a, a different world in, in that regard. So it's, it's your, you know, they're talking about working with younger players and the importance of the psychological side, the social side of the game. And you're thinking, you know, I, I want a little, I want a bit of this. This is, this is completely different to what I'm doing now. This is, I'd like to go and get involved in that. So I think through more through doing my qualifications, that's where the kind of ambition came of can I now go and do this full-time? Is there an opportunity for me to go and do this full-time as opposed to the actual managing, giving me that kind of direction? And you were in a, a full-time job as well at the, at the time, weren't you? Um, yeah. Yeah, I'd, I was in a full-time job of seven or eight years. It was relatively well-paid. And I kind of got to a point where while this was going on, and there was no kind of connection between the two, but I had I'd just come out of a long-term relationship. I didn't have any debts. I didn't have anything kind of tying me down away from away from that job. So I kind of rolled the dice a little bit and I started to have a little look what was out there. And that's when that's when America, that's when America appeared. And we'll move on to America in a little bit, but that those first kind of um, times in charge of that that reserve side. Um, obviously, you, your late twenties, early thirties at that point. How was that? How was that experience? Because that environment can be quite tough. That that Saturday league environment. It is. It is. And again, I kind of it's been so long. I've been out of it for so long, and as you can imagine, I'd, I'd come home at Christmas, and you know what it's like at Christmas here with the with the weather and fields being closed and, and the like. So I've been away from it so long that I don't know how it kind of differs, but it was, it was aggression. It was, um, there was a lot of that kind of side to it away from just tactics and technique and, and development. It was going to win games. I, I look back when we'd, we traveled to, to Liverpool and let's say there was 15 players on the day. You'd make three subs and there'd be, there'd be one lad that didn't get on and he wasn't allowed to get on. He wasn't allowed to play, which is completely alien to to what I see now where everyone's playing and everyone's getting minutes. And um, yeah, that side of it was, that side of it was different, but um, it was, it, it had a drink, it had a drinking culture to it and it, 
it had that kind of social side to it, which is I think what the boys the boys that played or you know, I think when they look back to it, they'll probably look back to the social side of it and, and everything that, that brought. Um more so than the football side, but it was it was good for me. It was perfect for me to go and get involved and get my voice out there and yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. And that social side of it, that can be quite hard, can't it? You know, when you're not specifically the, you know, the, I don't know, sort of established manager as some, and, and you kind of going from being their mates to, to yeah. telling them what to do and telling them when they can go on and off the pitch. It, was that bit particularly hard, you know, if someone had an issue with you to actually learn, or someone might not like me? Yeah, less, less so, less so then. And again, we might touch on it from an America standpoint that um, when we'll travel, when we travel in, in America, you're staying in hotels, you're with families and, and kids. And, you know, if, if, if there's an issue there with a parent, with a player, that's a lot more testing than, than going to a pub on a Saturday and someone hasn't played a massive amount of minutes. So I, I didn't really have that much of a... A struggle with that when I was working with adults as much as you'd kind of look at it and think I imagine that was I, I didn't really I didn't really struggle with that and I think I just think that there was a bit of respect there I think that the lads liked me appreciated the effort that I was putting in so it, it wasn't as hard as you'd imagine to be honest and often amateur sports it comes down to commitment doesn't it um, yeah. and when you're committed on the sideline and you're you're going throughout the week trying to think of the best way to win the game or best way to prepare, travelling yeah. and, and everything that goes with amateur sports. How was it frustrating that, that some people weren't as good? Yeah, yeah and, I think, and I think some of that kind of went into my decision with working with younger players because I was very much into it and you'd, you'd stay up on a Friday night planning and preparing and um, you'd get there on a Saturday someone was late someone wasn't someone wasn't available and that can kind of be frustrating for you it can go in it can go and play havoc with any plans that you'd had but I think back then you kind of expected it and knew it was going to happen but when you're trying to bring a, a professionalism to it, it it definitely brought kind of frustrations for sure and when you say, you know, you moved to youth football um, as you did when you moved to America and you're going into something that's a, a lot more professional, what was it like when you decided to change that hobby to a profession? Um, it was it was, it was was big, as you can imagine, because like I said, I, I had a job that I'd trained in and, and worked in and advanced in and... Um, letting people know that you're kind of moving away from that to go and and gamble. And, and it was, it was a, that was a huge gamble getting on a plane and going to America. And I always look back to those, those weeks before the, the first couple of weeks there, I was personally very much out of my, again, that comfort zone in terms of, I didn't know what I was going into. America's a completely different beast when it comes to soccer and, um, I'd like I'd, I'd, I was living on my own. I was I was working in an office on my own for for seven years in a little dark office. I was I was living on my own, and then all of a sudden I'm I'm going to 
South Carolina and America and sharing a room with a with a lad from London. It was just there was a bit of panic to it. There was a bit of is this the right thing to be doing? And thankfully, I went and did it. And again, thankfully, I the the lad that I was sharing with when I got there um, was just in the end just the perfect person to to be with and the perfect person to be around. He kind of he knew when to leave you alone and he and he was one of them that can kind of pick you up. He had all the right kind of conversations. And I think if I'd have you know the the latter years obviously I had my own my own space in that. But I, I, that kind of first year being thrown in with someone and forced to go and socialize and have those kind of interactions with people was was the best thing that happened for me because like I said, it was such a such a daunting thing. Even at a, even at an older age, it was such a daunting thing to go and do. And I I had no idea whether I would be there for seven days, never mind seven years. You know, you get over there to to America. That's such a big a big move. Before you 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 mentioned about the weeks beforehand and and, and thinking about it and mulling it over what you wanted to do. Are you leaning on anyone in particular? to help you through that decision? Good question. Um, no, probably probably not. I mean, I, I don't really remember. Like I said, I was, I was, I was single at the time. I, I'd spoken with friends about it and then obviously your parents, but I don't particularly remember kind of anyone playing devil's advocate with me in terms of this could happen, that could happen. It was just very much me and packing a bag and going for it and quite proud of the fact that I, I actually went and done that. And again, it, same as probably coming on this coming on this call today, it's, it's easier just to say no and go, that's not for me. I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. It was probably easier for me to go, this doesn't make sense. You don't know how this is going to go. Um, so it's kind of one of the proudest things that I've done was – was rolling that dice and and getting on that plane and turning up in a in an airport after the longest flight of my life and getting picked up by a stranger and getting taken to the fields and meeting players, meeting parents, holding meetings. It was it was completely alien to anything that I'd ever done and yeah, probably the best thing I've ever done as well. What was the um, just a little bit of the night before your flight? What were you thinking? <laughs> Um, I don't know. I don't know whether there was much sleeping going on. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was. There was definitely, definitely a a fear factor to it all. It's just the unknown, isn't it? And it was just not knowing where I was gonna go, where I was gonna end up. And the company I work for was, uh, and still is, over multiple states. And I was due to go to Boston, and two weeks prior to going to Boston. So again, you can imagine I've made all of these kind of plans and you've been on the internet. I was told that I wasn't going to Boston anymore and I was going to South Carolina, which is a completely different world. And um, so that threw a bit of a spanner in the works and you're thinking, does this make sense? And are you committing that much money? You, you know, you've left your job. It was, yeah, it was nervy. I, I remember... I remember getting on that plane. I remember those first couple of those nights before and those first couple of days, just thinking, "Is this the right thing to go and do?" But 
did you ever think oh, I, I can't do this I'm gonna I'm gonna turn yeah. back and, and go out yeah yeah the first day the second day the third day the fourth day the first week was 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 horrible for me it was horrible for me psychologically it was horrible for me in terms of you, you're looking back in in terms of home and you're just questioning everything I'm, I'm quite a an overly analytical person. So everything that went on there, you're thinking, why is this happening? Who's this guy? You know, why are they going there? Why is this happening now? It was, it was a lot to take in. And yeah, those first couple of days and um, yeah, I, I was ready to come home after, after three or four days. And again, delighted that I, delighted that I stuck it out. That was, that was tough for me mentally to say the least. Was there a, a particular uh, conversation that made you think, oh, do you know what, I'm going to stay, I'm going to give this a go? Um, like I said, the guy the guy who shared the room with Stephen Hobart was was the best. If, if, I'd not, if I'd have been given my own space, if I'd have shared with someone else, it would have been a completely different story. But having someone like that straight away and, and his personality to, to support me, that was huge. Um, no, I don't think, I don't think anything kind of specific happened. There was a fear factor in terms of imagine going home, imagine right. turning back up a week later and trying to explain to your friends why you're home. There was that kind of factor to it that it would be quite embarrassing to come home, um, and then try and justify why you did it. And uh, there was there was that element, um, but no, I don't think anything specific in the US you just obviously got a bit more comfortable and started to adjust to the lifestyle a little bit and everything started to make a bit more sense I suppose. As someone who I, I remember turning up to a couple of those training sessions when you were at Bevington just as because I knew you and just by like pre-season sort of thing and they played in a few little friendlies and yeah. I remember it being like proper professional for the although it was a decent standard the, the training seemed to be above the standard you were playing at almost how frustrating is it at that level when sometimes that goes out the window on a match day when you touch on the like the aggressive teams just seem to dominate at that level the likes yeah. of the FCs and all those things was that a motivation to move to a better like like the American setup where it's probably a bit more gentleman like yeah it, it was definitely a it was definitely a motivation and again like I said the course has really really kind of led me in that direction but I, I think and that's probably the one thing that still kind of transpires from back then to now is you want to feel important as a player you want to you want to turn up and you want it to be professional whether you're 12 years old or whether you're 30 years old and you're still playing you want to you want to turn up in an environment that looks like the one that you watch on a on a Sunday at four o'clock so that was a big thing and it's again it's it's more of a care thing and, a, and an effort thing but that was a, a big thing for me that uh, and, and the other boys that were working at the club at the time is you wanted it to be you wanted it to be professional for them you wanted them to turn up and go all right this looks this looks good. I, I feel the part here and, and getting into a changing rooms that as the kits hung up and having the drinks there and having the cones out, the, the you know, the pre-game preparation, the the set pieces up on the wall. We I've always kind of looked at that and gone, it just gives the extra couple of percentages in terms of exciting the players and getting them ready to go. So that was always a big factor for me. And I've kind of always 
stuck to that and even today in, in, in the US with the social media and, and making people feel important that's, a, that's your job as a coach right it's getting them involved and, and letting them know that, that you're ready to kind of go so that that's always been something that I've done back then and, and, and still do now that you want people to feel important and you've coached various different ages, both genders, adults yeah. and kids. Is there a cut-off point for that type of preparation or is that something that you can't be too young for? I... Good question. I think I think obviously at the younger age groups, you want to... The, the preparation isn't overly important. Stretching and all of that isn't important to them. You wouldn't go and do a, a dynamic warm-up with an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, but in the same respect, there's a point where they kind of come in and you want them to go and switch on. You want them to get excited. You want them to to step on the field and win, lose, or draw, kind of give everything to what they go and do. So there's no there's, – there's very, very often, you know, American players will have that kind of changing room environment. It's very different, their kind of culture, in terms of the preparation of the game. But certainly – your pre-match warm-up and that side of it, you'll always want it to be professional and something that will kind of excite them and get them going. And just for those listening who might not be aware of what exactly you do, can you just talk on what qualifications you've got and what the setup is with the company you work for, what you deliver? Yeah, so that's the that's the big one. And and, and again, you talk about those first couple of weeks being in the, in the US. It's It's a completely... It's a completely different beast in terms of they have this pay and play model. So for you to for you to send your kid to play for for a club, it, it comes with a with a dollar amount. Um, for the for the sake of this conversation, let's say it's a thousand dollars for the season. So that that's the commitment the parents play. Uh, the parents pay for the for the season, and and with that they get the facilities the the coaches, the leagues that they go and play in, the leagues are fantastic, really well organised. The facilities are fantastic. The, the coaches bring a professional level. So regardless of your playing level and your qualities as a player, you have this kind of fantastic environment in terms of what you're getting. But it, it does come with that with that big dollar amount. And, um, so is it not big, as accessible for everybody then? In the, the same way, although yeah, you pay they have, the they, they have what they call a like a, a scholarship. So clubs will financially support players that can't afford to play. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much I want to go and get into that, but that there is an option for players to go and play. Now, I don't know whether clubs do enough to kind of get into the inner cities and, and get into those areas and, and, and claw players out and, and, and help them have the opportunity to go and play. But there's certainly an opportunity for if people can't afford or can't fully afford to go and play, um, they have to kind of go and prove that they can't pay and they'll get supported through that. But as you can imagine from a, a pride standpoint, not everyone wants to go and do that. And yeah, there's a it's a constant debate in the US the whole kind of pay and play structure it, it, it only kind of caters for a certain group of people um, 
And again, you can kind of go right into that and start looking at the national team level and the quality of those players. And you look at yourselves and when you were playing and would you have been able to have gone and played and, and had that kind of financial commitment from your parents? I, I don't know whether we would have. So it's a, it's a, it's a different beast in that regards. But what they're, what they're also, the kind of flip side to that is that players of quality can get financial support to their college registration. So again, for the sake of this, let's say it's, it's $30,000 to go to a university. If you produce quality from a soccer standpoint, then that soccer program at that university will be able to bring in players and reduce their fees or take away their fees. So that's a bit of a, that's a bit of a carrot for, for players and as you can imagine parents as well yeah when i was um you might remember when i was like 18 i went down that road to doing a soccer scholarship and i was by no means a brilliant footballer but i was just sort of solid on the football solid on the education said it was going to be like a part of funding and um obviously i never went but does that um system and that infrastructure allow for people like you more job opportunities than they would in this country a hundred percent a hundred percent and there's bits of it that are, like I said, that kind of scholarship, the inner city is getting into those areas and, and providing an opportunity for those players. There's, there is an ugly side to it, um, which, again, is difficult for me to say because I'm obviously someone that benefits from it, being able to work there full-time. And, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's America. It is the kind of the land of opportunity that if, if people want to go and work hard and, and 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 kind of get into something like this that the, the opportunities are there for people but um yeah like i said it's a it's a it's a it's a different beast in that regards and if i if i go back i'll 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 kind of flip this and go into the the coaching side and try and tell you a little kind of story which might hopefully go and break it down a little bit that on top of Again, that $1,000 that I said for the season, at some clubs, that, that could be like $3,000. Um, that's just a, a bit of a loose figure. But on top of that, they're paying for the uniform, the kits to go and play at the weekend, the the training T-shirt to wear three nights a week at training. On top of league play, you'll go to you know six tournaments across the year now. When a kid goes to a tournament, so if you have a 12-year-old kid that goes to a tournament, the parent has to pay for the coach to go to the tournament. The parent pays for the registration for the tournament. The parent leaves work early on a Friday, jumps in a car for four hours, stays in a hotel on a Friday night, gets up on the Saturday morning that the kids will go and play a couple of games. Um, Hotel again, Saturday night. This is all coming out of the parents' pocket. Play a couple of games on the Sunday. Back in the car. Four-hour drive home. You're getting in at, you know, 10 p.m., 11 p.m. on a Sunday. And then that's your weekend gone as a parent. Um, that's your weekend gone. It's hundreds of dollars gone. Um, the, the, that financial commitment is is huge. And I, I, that, that, makes your, that makes your coaching quite difficult that can kind of make it difficult for for the coaches that come in and some of the coaches that have worked that have worked with myself is you, you 
you don't want to have a focus on winning. You, it, it's not all about winning games of football. It's you want them to develop. You want them to go and play in different positions. You want them to be in an environment where they can go and make mistakes. All, all of that that your education teaches you. But in the same respect, you, you've then got parents 50 yards away on the other side of the field that have, have gone and paid that money to, to come, that paid that money to get here. And American, American sport away from soccer is it's all about winning you know you look at it's about winning and, and, it, and it's coach led if you look at American American football everything's about structure and, and plays and the coach making a decision of which player's going to get the ball where he's going to throw it to who's going to catch it where he's going to go when he's caught it basketball's the same and you're watching watching Michael Jordan at the moment at Netflix it's, it's all there's a, so much structure to it so these parents have been brought up in a in an environment where it is about winning it is about the coach and then you're going in and saying well we don't we don't particularly care about winning it's not it's not important for us in terms of your development and and I'm going to I'm going to take a bit of a back seat here I'm going to allow the kids to go and bring a bit of ownership to this and you know the parents are looking at you thinking We've paid such and such to come here. We want to win this game. I, I, I took a, I took an under twelve, I took an under twelve boys team to what we perceived to be a real high end tournament. We had a, we had a high end group of of players, under twelve boys, and we we took them to this tournament, and it was it was one where there was a hundred teams there. It was huge, and we've gone in and we've said we're going to go to this event. I know it's going to cost money. I know there's a lot of travel, but this is going to be fantastic because we're going to play against top teams. And we got there, and the first game, I can't remember the scores now, but the, the, both games are very comfortable. You've gone and won seven, eight, zero. Probably could have been more if you know you hadn't put, um, you know, if you hadn't stopped them from scoring goals. The second game, seven or eight zero, and you're thinking. We've travelled here. We've we've made you commit to coming here, and um, the boys just weren't being tested. And then the second day, we've come back again. We've played a semi final. We've won it comfortably inside. As a coach, you're thinking this is this isn't what we wanted it to be. And the it was myself coaching at the time. We've gone into the final, and you look at the the schedule, and you're playing one of the teams that you've already played in the final a team that you'd beaten like 7-0 the day before. And I'm thinking, this is a this is a disaster. We've built, you know, we've built this up. So I uh, I always tell this story, but I'd, I'd looked at it and gone, you have to be brave here. You have to go and get something out of this game. You have to go and test these kids. And, you know, there's certain things you can do. You can play with, you can play with less players. You can, there's certain things you can do and everyone will always kind of scrutinise that decision. Um, but I, I made a decision. I got the parents and I said, listen, I'm going to leave it to the boys. I'm going to, I'm going to disappear. I'm going to tell them I have this important phone call. And if I'm not back, you'll have to do your own warm up. If I'm not back, you'll have to pick the team yourselves. And I, and I went and I went and I went and sat at the top of the hill out the way where they couldn't see me. And I watched the boys get the cones out, go and do the warm-up that maybe we'd done the day before. And you're looking at it in terms of which players 
took the lead and, and who did what and what they, it was the best thing I've ever done. And then they had to go and pick the team themselves. And you're looking at it, who's taking the lead, who's, who's taking a step back, who's, who's getting involved in this mix. And um, it's quite a difficult thing to go and do. And I was explaining what I was going to do to the parents and they were like, well, what if, what if we don't win the game? What if this doesn't happen? And you're kind of looking at it going, well, what if we don't? At least we're going to go and get something out of it. But And what was the final score? They, 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 they won comfortably in the end. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I again, I always look back at it and, film, and think, if I'd have just sat there, I, I went down, obviously the first minute went down, shook the other coach's hand um, and sat there. But it was probably the, one of the best things I'd done with that group in terms of getting into their heads, putting some pressure on them, taking them out of the comfort zone um, and, and, and allowing yeah. them to, allowing them to go. And I, I always remember, I, I probably wouldn't remember the game if I'd not done that, but I remember sitting at the top of that hill, watching them and watching them getting the cones out at, at 11 years old and, and taking leadership. And some of them had to sit on the bench and, and some started and seeing them do that was, was huge. And, and that's what coaching's about at the younger levels, but it probably cost the parents a thousand dollars to go there, and it's uh, that that that's America. It's a, it's a different beast in that regard. If you look at the the English game, then where I would say that the professional and the amateur isn't as blended. There's a stark difference. You know who the kid in your school is who plays for Liverpool, who might be living with someone else's parents at fifteen and trying to get his YTX. Do you think if you moved into the English game and coached the youngsters, you'd prefer to deal with the pressure of the parents because it's so professional? Or is it a case of work like an actual academy in the UK and that, that's it? So, so if you see what I mean, the, the routes to, to coaching at a decent level. Yeah. The, if, if you go into the, again, you look at the money that's involved. Like The club that we're at has, uh, the club that I'm at currently has 1,200 players. So... If you kind of rewind that back, and again, that kind of rough figure of a thousand dollars, the the money is the money is huge, but it, it it is ran like an academy. It's they'll train three times a week. They'll they'll turn up in their in their training attire. It's 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 very professional at those levels, and we're not at a we're not at a professional club. We're not at an MLS club. We're not we're not at a, an out and out academy, but. The, the experience they get is is fantastic. I'm not overly, other than kind of coming home and, and, and taking a few looks at some of the clubs locally, I, I don't know how that goes and compares to football in this country. Um, I know, well, Samuel included, some of the clubs have kind of lost the academy and gone and moved away from that side of things. And um, yeah, I, I don't know how... I don't completely know how it would go and compare to an academy at Manchester City and, and what they're doing and what they're doing differently and, and how they're kind of identifying players. I know those players aren't paying a massive amount of money to go and play. So I think through that, they'll be able to go and get into, into different areas. And I think that's maybe where the U S fails a little bit in terms of the, the vastness of it and, the amount of people that are there, it, it, it's so difficult to go and ID talent in the US. 
Looking at that then, if you just look at the sheer investment from parents, from clubs, um, from maybe some of the local authorities out there, that, that we're looking at what's probably America's fourth most popular sport here, and we're talking about in comparison to our our number one sport, the, the sport we're probably most proud of as a, as a nation, England or the UK. Are we in danger of falling behind these countries in terms of infrastructure for young people? access and play sport it's very it's very hard to compare what we have to the united states of america and compare anything to the united states of america because because of the sheer size of it the sheer vastness to it this and you know 50 different states with with different rules different structures to it you know even if you look at everything that's going on now from a, a covid standpoint you'll have one state on lockdown, the, the other state that has this complete freedom to it. I, the, if I remember rightly, they didn't qualify for the World Cup. Um, they lost. They lost to a nation in the in the qualifying. I can't even think who it was. It was Panama or something. It was. Like that. It was Panama. We England went and played them in the group stages, and the argument was that and the and the US and everyone that follows the national team was. This is embarrassing. We lost to a country that is the size of such and such within New Jersey, and, yeah. and that was the that was the argument in terms of this is how embarrassing. But I think that is the the biggest problem that they have. It's just so difficult to go and identify the talent within within those areas. So um, I always I find them looking at Americans. So it's cut across there, just just while you're on that point. Um, is when you look at it, me, me and my dad have said this for years, watching them in like World Cups and stuff, because of their nature, they've always been really fit and they play almost like a pure a pure game of football and they probably lack that like street element, you know, the way Wayne Rooney Correct. is, Gerard is, where they have that, just that street element to them. I always think they're almost too pure in how yeah, they and do it's, things. It's, it's, it's the structure that, that, that we talked about earlier that, They'll go and train three nights a week and you'll have a coach there that the, the parents will come and watch the training. The parents will sit there and watch the training and the coach feels that I have to get my voice across here. I have to justify me being here. I have to justify you guys paying for this training session. So I'm going to have to be loud. I'm going to have to put out a lot of cones here. I'm going to have to stop and stand still and you do this. You So there's... There's a lot of structure in, into what they do, whereas, you know, when, when you learn to play football, you, you didn't learn it from a coach. You probably can't remember your coaches. You learned it from from going and, and, and playing 1v1s and FA singles and, and playing at the field for six. They, they lack that, just that kind of natural freedom to, to go and play. So that is a that is a kind of a big factor. The, the, How does that affect your ability to coach and your enjoyment of coaching when you feel like you've got to do things not to keep up appearances, but to, yeah. because that's what the parents want to see rather than that's what you want to do? Yeah, well, that's the that's the big battle as a as a coach and, and and trying to let coaches know that they have the freedom to go and do that. And again, it's difficult from a time standpoint. The amount of time you actually go and spend with you know, your players and, and go and spend with your team. But it's it, it's tough. It's it's working in football full-time. It's the dream, right? Everyone wants to go and do it. And to be able to have done it for as long as I've, I've currently been doing it, it's such a privilege. Um, 
but you are kind of it's nine till nine it, it's you look at Jose Mourinho everyone always talked about him at United he was the first one in the last one to leave and, and that is football management that is football coaching the the hours are the hours are intense and so you're, you're putting a massive amount of time in it which your, your, your social life psychologically becomes very difficult and again rewind back to the the tournament where I went and stood at the top of the hill. If I come down that hill and the two nil down and they go and lose the game to the team that they, they beat the day before I'm jumping in the car on my own. No one's with me. I'm, I'm driving back for four hours thinking, what have you just done? What's John's dad going to be saying? Oh, you've already yeah. got an email off Eric's dad. Um, being brave and, and, and being able to go and be the coach that you want to be in America is, um, I think that's really tough. Now, again, I look at the mental side of that and how difficult some of those Saturday nights, those Sunday nights can be where you're kind of questioning yourself. And um, I've kind of like, we've had coaches come out that have come and worked in the club and they've gone and had an ugly day on the Saturday and, I kind of look at them on the Saturday night and they're, they're full of beans and they're happy and they're smiling. And I'm thinking, part of me is thinking, I wish I could be like that. I wish I was quite comfortable after having an ugly day. Um, mm. But then the other part of me is maybe a leader to them and someone that's overseeing them going, hold on a minute, why aren't you Why aren't you stressed? Why aren't you looking to have a beer? Why aren't you disappointed? Why aren't you questioning everything? So... That psychological side, that mental side, oh, it's, it, it's hugely difficult. I think there's, I think there's a Churchill, I'll probably butcher this, but there's a Churchill quote that you'll never get to where you need to be if you stop and throw stones at every dog that barks. And, um, you know, I've always looked at that quote. You know, you can kind of, you'll have 12 players on your team. You, you, you go and have a good weekend and 11 players are happy, but... You know, Bill's dad's emailing you saying such and such, I didn't like this. Why did this happen? And that can be tough for the coaches to come in to kind of get that sort of feedback where someone's so in your face and so critical. And um, But who are we to say you shouldn't be critical when you're paying such a massive amount? And, and Bill's been working Monday to Friday. Um, he's been in work Monday to Friday. He finished work early his entire weekend was jumping in the car going to that tournament. It's that's that's the tough part from a a full time coach that I don't think people see and I don't think people appreciate how difficult that can be, especially some of the younger coaches coming in. You you worked with a lot of different age groups and a lot of different kids and yeah. you as well as being a coach, you're probably a mentor, a friend and a, 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 a like a, an adult figure to them. And they must confide in you and, and, and say things to you that sometimes you think, well I've done my badges, but I haven't been prepared to deal with such and such Correct. a problem. And how, how have you developed as a person to handle those type of things? Yeah, my, like in terms of my own development, massively. And again, you kind of go back to that first week in America. And again, me, uh, prior to going to America, I, 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 we went to a training weekend at St. George's Park. And it was fantastic. And we spent three days there and the, the, the guy who, who ran my company, he, he was speaking to us at the end on the back of those three days. And he said, if if you're the kind of person that goes to that dark place, this isn't going to be for you. You know, if you're the person that 
glass half empty. And I thought, I remember sitting there thinking, you know, that, that is me, that if I can shake away from something, if, it, if, it, if I can go and get away from it, you know, that is very much me. And he was like, this isn't for you. And again, I'm, I'm getting on that plane thinking, I always remember it, those kind of words lingering and, um, and it's probably been personally the best thing that's come out of it. A week, a week into being in America, I had to go and hold a, a team meeting with players and parents that I hadn't really met um, and explain how the season was going to go. And I didn't know how the season was going to go and explain what we were doing and explain US soccer, which I didn't really have a full grasp of. And they were the most daunting of things, again, coming out of your comfort zone. But 100% they're, they're the bits that have gone and built me. I, I'll go and thrust myself in front of parents and, and go and have those conversations now. So from a from a personal standpoint, the the things that I feared the most have probably been the things that have kind of got me to to where I was. And um, from a from a player coach standpoint, I, I still think that's the bit that the people miss. Again, I talked about coaches having that pressure to go and put on this fantastic training session because people are paying for it and people are watching. I think I think coaches lose that player and coach relationship through doing that you they, they want the training session to look fantastic they want everything to have structure it's quite difficult to then go and have that individual relationship and it's probably the one thing I'm I'm, I'm by no means you know one of the better coaches around that you know I, I know where I kind of lie but in terms of having relationships with people I'll hang my hat on that that it's probably the most important thing I think if I think if a player is comfortable around you and if, if a player feels like they can come to you, then you, you've kind of won that battle. So it's that, that, that's the privilege. That's, that's the excitement. That's, that's the bit that I'll always kind of, if it was to end today or I'll always look back at that and go and how good was that, that you were kind of trusted to go and have those relationships with kids and, um, and did it and did it for so long and that they, that they were able to come up to you and have conversation. Every everything you say to a to a kid is huge. You, you can't you can't be sarcastic. You can't you can't joke. Everything you ever kind of provide them from an information standpoint, it has to be right. It has to be it has to make sense to them. It has to be something that kind of inspires them. And yeah, that's 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 the best thing about it. And it's it's the most it's the most scary thing, the most scariest thing about it that you don't want to let them down. You don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to, you don't want to let them down. And that's the, that's the big battle. Oh, as a, as a it coach. must have been hard for you to not not be dry and sarcastic. I know, I know. <laughs> I, mean, <you> so, <laughs> I think, I think if, if I work with an older group, um, they appreciate sarcasm. And again, you're right. I'm, I'm probably I am dry and I am sarcastic, and that's <laughs> that, that's that's something that you have to go and hold back from doing. Um, but yeah, you're right. That was that was hard for me to go and claw it back. And I, I've worked with coaches that can get out of bed, turn up at a field, and just pluck a training session out of their head. And it's probably a really good training session. That like the planning of it. And, and the structure to it and making sure that you create this environment for that hour and a half where they can get the best out of it. They can go and have some leadership. To, like it's huge. And 
it's 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 quite daunting that as you can imagine because you need to go in you can never you can never hold a training session and go oh we got we're so much better after that training so it's such a it's such a process that the kind of yeah. players development and i kind of look at what's going on now with the with the covid and and some of those younger age groups kind of missing that golden period because um it, it, like I said, it, it's daunting again for, for coaches coming in. Just everything has to have that kind of, you have to tick those boxes. You have to make sure that every player is getting something out of it. And as daunting as that, as daunting as that is, the rewards and, and getting it right and, and, and putting the time in, it's a, it's a privileged position to be. You seem to obviously put quite a lot of pressure on, on yourself, and but you are meticulous and it's probably why you've been successful for so long in what you do. What what do you do to wind down to switch off? Because you touched on before, would the lads may bounce in and it won't affect them as much. But clearly, you, it's not something you can just turn on and off. But what are no. like mechanisms in that sense for yourself? I, I, that's the bit that maybe I haven't got right. Um, that's the bit that I've probably battled personally throughout my throughout my time in, in the US, where whereas maybe other people have been able to kind of settle down there a little bit more or or find a, a social avenue to, to go and get into. I've, I, f- I think some of it is that kind of fear factor where I'm looking at it going, why, why are you trusting in me? Why, why are you lot allowing me to do this? Why are these parents allowing me to, to, to spend this time with the kid? I, I want to make sure that I go and get that right. And again, with it being so, so full time, we'll we'll get up in the morning. We'll go into an office environment. We'll we'll plan. We'll prepare. We'll we'll look at the the club in its entirety, and then following that kind of office environment, we're out on the field for three hours, and it, it is very much it's full on. And again, as I told you, the weekend comes and off you go. You you know you're on the road. You you're playing games, and it it, it is it is hard to go and switch off from that and I, I've never particularly done well at that but I also have the fear factor of if I do go and switch off am I gonna uh, am I gonna lose the quality am I not gonna go and bring enough to the role am I just those little percentages in terms of what you go and bring to the kids so yeah I that's the difficult factor Working with kids and, you know, not, not that I do work with kids, but just knowing what they're like and the energy that they bring. It's not something you can do in, in autopilot like you would some other jobs where maybe, I don't know, you just work in an office and you, you, you can do the same sort of monotonous day every day, sort of half thinking about it. But with your role, you can't have 15, 12-year-olds full of energy for that two hours that they've got with you yeah. and just do it half-hearted. Some, you really? some, some can, some coaches can take, can turn up and flick a switch. And I don't know whether I, I envy it. I can't, sometimes I do. I obviously think I wish I could do that. Um, but again, you, you, you are methodical, you go and plan it. And again, it goes back to the, it goes back to the individual that if, if one of those kids has had a bad day, if one of those kids is struggling at home, if one of those kids has, has something going wrong from a social standpoint, are you able to spot that? Is that going to go and affect the entire group? Are you able to go and put your arm around that player? Can you get a feel for the individual whilst this bigger picture's going on? Again, you get in the car, you travel for three hours, you've got a game. 
can you spot who's not feeling it, who's who, who has something going on that you can go and support them, go and help them, go and get the best out of them. That that whole kind of one player needs the arm round and the other one needs the kick up the back. That side of it is is massive and it's difficult. It's difficult to go and really anyone can go and anyone can go and coach. Anyone can go and let kids play and put a training session on, but being able to get in the, into the individual and, and get into their heads and go and support them in that regard. That's the most difficult part, but again, it's the best part as well. And you and your colleagues, would there be support for yourselves if you spoke up to, to your company and said, well, I've been struggling with this age group or I'm just struggling, I need a bit of time to myself? Or would you just sort that between you because you've almost like a bit of a band of brothers, it seems, on social media? Yeah, yeah, that does that does happen. Um, look, I'm, I've been on it for seven years. We've had people that come in and, and don't bring that care side to it. Again, you can be a fantastic coach. You can be a, a coach right at the start of the spectrum and, and, and beginning to kind of get into it. You can, regardless of where you're at, you have to care. That, that has to be the, the, you know, the top of the tree. And we've had some coaches that come in that are probably a decent player and probably a decent coach, but don't overly care. And if you get thrown in with that kind of person and then you're having to work with them 12 hours a day, there's, there's there's difficult kind of sides of that from a coaching standpoint. But yeah, we've had coaches that have come in and maybe are struggling from a time period. Maybe they do need a break. Maybe they do need that little bit of support. But I, I, again, that's a, from a football standpoint in the role that you're in, coaches don't overly feel comfortable saying, I'm struggling here a little bit. I, I don't really know what I'm doing. No one wants to, no one wants to be that coach that says, I need a bit of help here. So being able to spot it, being able to find the right time to go and support people. And that's kind of how my role has gone and transpired is, is someone that can hopefully go and support the coaches as well, as opposed to just supporting the players. But yeah, it's the same as anything. Are, are they, uh, do they feel comfortable speaking out and do they feel comfortable letting people know that they need help and maybe they're struggling a little bit? It's, again, a completely different level to it all. And as someone who's coached in both the UK and the US various levels and looking at sort of an inadequate grassroots service that this country provides, do you think there's a correlation between lack of grassroots sport in the UK and maybe public health problems? As an outlet, as an outlet I appreciate you, obviously, that's not your forte, you're more technical, no, but physical no. and mental side. Yeah, and I think... Um... Again, I look. I look at my own situation at the moment. I've, I'm back in the UK now, and for someone that is, or has been so full on, that's so difficult for me now to come back in an environment where I'm not allowed to work. I'm not allowed to go and do what I do. So I'm, you, you're kind of out doing your, your physical activities, knowing all those kind of toxins and everything that that goes and brings. And I said it before. I come home every Christmas thinking, can't wait to go and watch the lads. I can't wait to go and watch games and. The, you know the weather causes havoc so yeah i would i would imagine there is a correlation between the two and the fact that people aren't able to go in to play and we don't have the facilities um it's chicken and egg i suppose in terms of what kind of comes first do you do you go and produce this kind of pay and play model in this country and through doing that you then have money to go and 
put into facilities. It's, it, it's obviously clearly tight away from that kind of top division in this country. Money is always uh, money is always an issue, and you go all the way into grassroots levels that that it kind of goes into a, a facility standpoint and having full time staff and being able to afford to to have people kind of away from the volunteer standpoint. Um, having people that can go and support that. But yeah, 100%, I imagine there is a correlation between the two. Bringing something up before, where you talked about you're not going to improve off one training session per se, it's going to be adding you all are. the... Adding you are, all you're, the never, you're never going to be able to... You're never going to be able to an, analyse that individual scenario and go, we just got 0.2% better. Like you, yeah, exactly. To see that. But yeah, you, you're going to improve, of course you are. But go on, so in, in terms of... Um, People always want instant success. So, you, you, as you say, you might need to put a plan in place that maybe 5, 10, 15 years. And I look at Iceland where they said, we're going to coach everybody to UEFA, no, FA2 or whatever their equivalent is, indoors yeah. in the winter because we can't play outdoors. And they, they put this plan in place. And you think, I think the less than half a million people, they qualified for the first European Championships, got out the group, qualified at the World Cup, knocked England out. And there seems to be this sort of instant need. And if you think, oh, if I put 20 million in grassroots in the UK, it won't touch the sides because it's not a sustained plan. And then sort of the second question to that is, is there a bit of a snobbery in the UK coaching circuit where if you're not an ex-pro, then who are you and you don't know the game and those type of things? Does that make it almost difficult for people who want to get involved who may not have had a playing career? I think from a UK standpoint, when you look at the ex-pros and whatnot, it, it is an easy, it's an easy fit, but it does make sense, doesn't it? You're looking at a player that's been there and done it and experienced professional football throughout this time. Um, it makes sense that that player would be able to, to then go and bring the experience that they have and, um, yeah, I have a, I have a different kind of feel when it comes to the, the qualifications and stuff. And obviously, you go, you you'll go on a course and you'll, you, you'll take in the information and you'll be able to go and deliver something and get marked on what you're delivering. And I think a lot of the times you go on a course, you, you won't be coaching the under twelves. So you're a under twelve coach three nights a week. You go on a course and you're probably putting on your session and there's three ex-pros there there's you know there's a couple of older fellas that are limping around it's hard to go and replicate that from a a licensing standpoint so they're hugely important and again the information you take from the courses is is massive but i i think the biggest thing for me is you know i've used that word care and and, and making sure you do care but personality empathy character these things are the, the the top of the list for me when it comes to getting into the individual, working with the individual, being able to build those build those relationships with with the player per se, as opposed to a group. Because anyone can go and coach a group, anyone can go into a game at the weekend, but how can you ensure that you you the best player's getting something out of it? The player at the at the lower end who's catching up, how's he getting something out of it? A lot of that for me, you've got to have the information, you've got to have the right technical information. and um, But a lot of that for me is just 
character as a coach and personality and empathy and and being honest and, and you know being being someone that players can trust and the people around you can look at going you know this is this is an honest guy he's he's I'm comfortable with my child being around him. I'm comfortable as a player being around him. I want to go and play for him. This is the sort of person that's going to go and help me. So, yeah, I don't, I don't look at, I don't look at qualifications being the be all and end all. I've seen UEFA A licensed coaches come in, and I've seen people that haven't done a single licensed course and and don't have a certificate to the name and get into coaching. And again, it's it's all about. It's all about the effort you go and bring and the excitement you go and bring. And, and people will people will argue that and people will have a different opinion to that. But that's very much kind of from my experience. I, I look at that standpoint and think that's what I'd be looking for in a coach that someone that, that, that kind of brings that personality to it. What I always find strange, what you've just touched on there in terms of regulation and coaching and practice, that Apart from maybe a DBS check or something that you should be required to, for anybody to work in a, a job for other people, is that some some former pros don't get a job because they haven't got the quite qualification or something like that. And it seems weird, doesn't it, that they're not a doctor or they're not like a lawyer where you can see why you would need X qualification to, to do your job. You're going out and coaching football, and that's not putting anybody down who's done the badges. I just mean, from a professional standpoint, I can almost see what you're saying is, you could be perfect for the job, but you haven't got it on a piece of certificate, it seems. Yeah, there was there, there was something that went on with Gareth Southgate when he was at Middlesbrough, and that there was, was it, some, yeah, some sort of ruling that, and he's obviously the, the top of the tree now in terms of his job, but there was some sort of ruling back then that he hadn't done this licence, which didn't allow him to go and do this job. And I I agree, it's it shouldn't be that. It shouldn't be that plain sailing. I think a lot of that kind of comes into that um, the the governing body of the country that if you're going to come and work for the FA, if you're going to come and work within this structure, then we want to be able to educate you in in how we want players to play. This is our style of play. This is our philosophy. This is our this is mm. the formation that we play with. So I think that side of it does become important. Um, but yeah, I've, I've seen people, and I'm—I I don't particularly enjoy the evaluation piece of of courses. I, I've never particularly enjoyed that because I find it difficult to, again, as like I said it before, to speak to a grown man the same way I would do with an eleven-year-old or a twelve-year-old. So I think some people go into that and and have that experience and, and go and shine in that sort of environment, and and those that don't. We'll probably go back out on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, work with the team and be fantastic. So that's uh yeah, it's a an interesting I could go on about that one all night to be honest. But yeah, I, I, go on, go on. Just gonna say any thoughts that sort of ties into that with the money surrounding it. So you could maybe go down a, an education route where you go to university, you get degree, masters, whatever it may be, in sports science or coaching, and then all of a sudden you find yourself not at being an extra pro and maybe getting some uh, subsidiary funding from your, from the PFA or your club to do your badges and you're looking at doing your way for B or something with like a five £6,000 fee and you're looking at it going, this is just physically impossible for me to get into. Have you faced that yourself? Is that a reason maybe you haven't taken some of your uh, way for badges? Yeah, well, a lot of it is for me has, has been the fact that I've not been here to do it. So I've not been in the country to go and do the UEFA side, but I, I've done some of the 
you know, the US qualifications, but a hundred percent there's there's a waiting list in this country, there's an acceptance. Um, you know, certain people go and get accepted. I'm not too sure on the the criteria of that. And then again, it's a it's a massive financial component. So if it costs you two thousand pounds to go and do your your B license, the likelihood is as a coach in this country, you're probably working from a volunteer standpoint. You're not going to be getting paid to go and coach at the level that you're currently at, um, away from those that are within the few academies within the country. So are you going to go and pay £2,000 to go and improve your volunteer status? It's uh, yeah, that uh, That's another thing that, that constantly wrangles on in terms of the, the costs associated to it and those that are accepted to go and get on it, whereas you know, ex-pros and, and, and whatnot will go and get fast-tracked and will be able to go and do some of these qualifications in a in a shorter period of time. Um, yeah, I don't, I, again, I, I kind of look at, I do sit on a different side of that in terms of the importance of it, but um, yeah, you could go on all day, to be honest. Welcome back. I've still got Ryan with me. Ryan, quite a lot to um, digest, quite a lot to take away from, from Joyce's words there and some conversations that we've had previously with with footballers and football coaches and sort of different people in football. I think back to sort of Dan Parnell, we spoke a lot about mm. grassroots football and it was interesting to get Juicy's perspective from someone who has coached at that level and then gone on to coach at other levels as well. In terms of your perspective from listening to it back and you know, conducting the interview as well, what were your sort of biggest takeaways? I think it's, um, it's, it's tricky really because we know Juicy and we had to kind of put a different hat on to speak to him about the, the stuff we talked about. And sometimes it's probably harder telling people you know these things than, than people you don't know. And it's, it, he used to come home sometimes at Christmas and we'd just peck his head. We'd ask him all sorts of questions. How's this going? How's that going? What, what do you want to do next? And, and all that. But it was good to actually just sit down and actually talk to him in, in mm. some detail around what the actual experience was like. Because even with knowing him, we never truly knew his day-to-day what he did, what motivated him, what his challenges were. I think the biggest one for me was the fact that he even went in the first place. He, he touched on it a lot. He, that wasn't easy. And I think if you're passionate about sport, the easiest route is you've had some form of career in it, whether that be by the means of playing, that could have been ended early through injury and you've got into coaching, or it could be you've had a successful career. The, the pathways in football are often very well connected. They're very... You're going to get the same sort of people coming through. So when you want to carve that path yourself and you have to come out of your comfort zone and Joyce started standing still, he didn't have people to speak to, people to rely on. He had to basically go out, get his own experience and then just take a chance. And that chance happened to be a couple of thousand miles away in a different country with a different culture. And People look at America and they think, oh, they speak English, it's easy. It's it's still a massive, massive culture shock if to, to go over to a place like that and and not just not just coach, but to coach is your full time job to earn a living, yeah. to 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 live with new people and, 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 and have people's children as your responsibility. And I think even if he did come home after a week, he ended up staying I think for seven years. There's no reward without an element of risk, and I think for anyone mm-hmm. listening, if if you are passionate about something, then take a chance in it because you can't really fail. If it doesn't go well, you can you can look back and go, do you know what? I tried my hand at it. It was something I always wanted to do. 
it didn't work and if it does work it could be the, the best decision of your life and I think for Joyce his career might move in different directions moving forward but he'll always have that aspect of his life mm. to look back on and not just from a, a coaching career point of view from a from a personal point of view and learning new skills and being confident I think Joyce as you can probably hear from his interview is quite introvert anyway and I, I don't think that was a decision he took lightly to do what he did he put himself in the firing line and I like to think it paid off. So yeah, I think a bit of risk, a bit of a bit of anxiety around a decision that's ultimately going to benefit you, while difficult at the time, is something that everybody should consider. Yeah, I think there's a there's a for a lot of people, if you make a difficult decision like that, you can feel those pangs of anxiety, those yeah. pangs of oh shit, what have I done here? But have I bitten off more than I can chew? And I think trying to remember that that's normal to feel like that. That's part of the the process and working your way through it into the point where, as you say, you're developing in the job and you, you, you're making a difference, which is clearly what, what happened to Joyce as well. I think he talked, you were talking about confidence there, right? Yeah. One thing that I thought was interesting to listen to was that he was clearly, Joyce was he's clearly really proud of what he did and in terms of self-esteem and, and in terms of giving yourself that confidence, it's clearly shown him that he can do it mm. and he's it, it, shown himself to... As you say, football coaching is such a difficult career to get into because the options are limited if you're not an ex-footballer or if you're not somebody already in that circle. So for him to be able to carve out a career at that length and do what he did is incredibly impressive. And I'm sure it's not the last of the people we'll hear of, of Mark Joyce in, in football coaching. Um, I mean, he was when we were talking about him in managing at, at Beb, I played for, for Joycey for the back end of one season once for about, I think about five or six weeks. And just listening to him, it, I could attest to all of the things that he says about the way that he goes about coaching. Even though it was only a short amount of time, I played under him as a, as a manager, as a, as a coach. Compared to a lot of coaches at, at the level that I've played at, he's just so succinct in what he says and so clear in his message. And he clearly cares about you playing better and enjoying it. And that was like a big thing that came across, and it and it makes a huge difference to a player, even if it's at an amateur grassroots level. As Joycey said, you want to turn up and feel important, and you want to turn up and someone to care, and to have someone like Joycey there is massive for, for people in, at yeah. that level of football, particularly. Yeah, it's um, as you say, it's about a clear and concise message, mm. especially when you're dealing with uh, youth football, where you don't want to overcomplicate drills, you don't want to overcomplicate the message, you want them to be listening. The attention spans might be maybe a little bit shorter when I get the balls out and just kick it and you've got to manage the fun alongside the improvement. I think uh, you touched on like Bob being proud of, of achievements. I think Joyce's pride is in his in his preparation. He's not someone who shouts about the things he's done or, mm. or achieved or the things he's proud about. I think he shows it like physically, a tangible way in terms of taking that home and always wanting to improve and making sure every session's an improvement in the last session. And, Pride in a different way. Yeah. Um, Pride to, to do that job and, and I'll be given the reins and the responsibility. Yeah. Well, similar to yourself, I had very limited experience of, of playing a few pre-season games underneath him. And um, yeah, the message was very clear, but there was a lot of detail in it, which I think is quite a skill in itself to have a, like a, a detailed message that doesn't take sort of mm. five minutes to relay. It's just a quick 20 seconds bit of information. Yeah. Come back, here's another bit of information. And I always remember him saying to me, I think I was sat next to him watching Drammy once, or I was just texting him and he said, manager doesn't speak for 15 minutes at half time. Um, 
and that, that always stuck with me because in my head, foolish, I always thought, oh, manager's going to sit there and talk for 15 minutes at our mm-hmm. time. And he was talking about how like players will digest some information amongst themselves. They'll go away, speak yeah. to the coaches. They'll come back with a message. And communication, we talk about it all the time. And um, Joyce is quite quiet quite quiet he's funny very dry sense of humour but quite quiet but I think he just comes alive in that environment because mm. he, he knows what he's doing and there's no better confidence when you know what you're talking about I yeah. don't think is there yeah absolutely and I think you know one thing I wanted to, to kind of ask you Ryan before we before we wrap up you mentioned in that interview and I know it's something that you and I have spoken about before about you were looking into doing one of those football scholarships in America mm. going back 10 years now aren't we yeah. um, showing our age there a little bit <laughs> um, but why did you? What was your full process with that? What? How did it come about? And what were you kind of looking to do with it? And what ultimately made yeah. you decide to stay and stay in England? So I, um, I was never like a brilliant footballer. I was I was always quite physically fit. I could get around the pitch quite well. I could do the basics well. I thought I was never going to be someone who'd beat three men and put it in the top end and play academy football. But I, I, I played regularly. Um, so I went along to. Uh, a company in called Soccer Icon who held trials in Rochdale, and it was sort of mixed ability. So when we got there, it was it was dead daunting. I was only seventeen, and speaking to the lads in the changing rooms, and they were like, "Oh yeah, I've been released by Man City, or I was playing at Altrincham, or the Northwest based lads." There's one lad actually. The the first day, he ended up signing for Bolton. Um, I had the joys of marking him in, in one of the halves and he just went past <laughs> me like I wasn't there. But anyway, I got invited back. Um, did a second trial. And then I got accepted onto the program, which which essentially meant if you're on the program, um, you've been basically scouted to the level that they think you will get a deal at someone, but they hadn't yeah. selected the college you played for at that point. So then you do an open trial at the time. It was Lily Shaw. Uh, I don't think the New England camp had been... Actually, it might have been ready, but they didn't use it. So it was at Lily Shaw you'd go. There would be about 50 coaches from America from representing different schools and then there would be people watching on a video link and there was essentially like 50 lads did play and you'd get offers. Yeah. So some lads who were the higher level would get 100% scholarships all paid for. Right, exactly, yeah. But you had to sit exams as well because they take the education side very seriously so they weren't going to fund tuition because you were good at football if you couldn't spell your name. Yeah, because right. essentially they wanted a bit of both so I got told I wouldn't get a full scholarship I'd get a part funded one which meant that my mum would have to mum and dad would have to put a bit of money in my pocket to go over there to play so this this game at Lily Shaw was coming up I was just turning I must have been 17 but going on 18 I'd left college a few months prior and um, I, I needed money my mum and dad didn't have thousands of pounds to yeah, give yeah, me yeah. so I ended up getting a job um as like an office junior for a law firm and lo and behold got a promotion met my missus just never went mm. never went and the, the offer was open for about 18 months I think and then I just stopped the email and stopped going to the training I used to go after I was accepted on I used to go to the trial matches because they wanted players to fill in and um, a close friend of mine Scott you know, Scott Nixon he yeah. went to, and he, he had a trial he was a few years older and stuff like that and then yeah just just faded out and it's something I've, I've always regretted but I, I, as I say I wasn't I wasn't really a brilliant football but it would have been good to go to mm. college over there and just have that the, the experience of living in another country and, and going through it all but um, yeah it wasn't to be and I think part of that was because 
back of my mind I was probably a bit scared to mm-hmm. be honest with you to do it and wasn't willing to take that chance and then second you get in a relationship you know and it's like you, yeah. <laughs> everything goes on the back burner but yeah the whole process what I would say about it is despite it being held in England and obviously the company doing it they're a private company they're there to make money the more ads they put through the more commission they get so yep. I did, did appreciate that aspect of it uh, with a bit of hindsight but the actual process of it was really slick mm. And sounds like it. Sounds like really well. It's strange. Yeah, it was in a place called Hopwood Hall in in Rochdale, which I think we've ended up playing for for Tramway Supporters Team. Um, But looking back, you think, how does that setup exist for you to go play elsewhere? Yet college football and university in this football and this this country just seems dire. Well, yeah. (laughs) So I suppose I'll give you a converse story about university football. So when I went to university in Manchester. I found out when the, the trials were for the football team, turned up at some park in the middle of Manchester. It was just literally like playing yards, basically. <laughs> and so there was there was pitches laid out with goals, but not with nets on them or anything. And it was the third year lads who were running it. And then all the first years were, were trialling out for the team. And they split us into, say, like four teams or whatever it was. And then we had to, we just played different matches, you know, like 20-minute matches against all the other teams. And they didn't bring any bibs. So they had to do shirts v skins. <laughs> I'm stood in this pitching match, and I was quite self conscious at the time. And I was like, I really don't want to go skins. Like I really don't want to. But like our team was skins, and I was like, if I don't go skins, I just can't play. <laughs> so I went skins. I was just running around, like my nipples out <laughs> in, in, in some field in Manchester. It was awful, and it was really shit. And then by the end of the thing, the, the third year lads were saying who they wanted to come back, and they were like. Um, you know, first team trainings next week or whatever it was, and I was like, "Nah, just take me off, take me off your list. I don't want to play. Really? I'm not interested." And that was because, and going back to what Josie was saying about it being a professional setup, it was just I was like, "This is just tosh. This is rubbish." Yeah. And I was thinking, I would rather get the train home back to the Widdle every week to play for our team than have to stay doing that. And I ended up playing for a team in Bolton and was there for a couple of years, and that was a decent standard. So that was a proper setup. But I was just like, I think you make a really good point. It's a really good comparison for the sort of systems, and we won't get into it now because it, you know, it's, a, it's probably something we could do an episode on, really, isn't it? About mm. you know what solutions could we have to the kinds of problems that we've got with youth football in this country, mm. ranging from the fact that grassroots football is dying on its arse because it hasn't got enough money, all the way up to the amount of money that's in academy football, and you're getting ninety nine point three percent of people coming out of it without any future in football the, the disparity between the two is huge and it's really damaging for young people and I think there does need to be a big conversation about what we do at that age with football the importance we put on it and what kind of pathways there are for people mm-hmm. who want to explore a career in football but also keep their options open elsewhere and yeah I think it's um, yeah I think it's that's such a good example of it mm-hmm. you know that something like that is set up in this country to, to funnel players into another country's soccer system yeah. And over here, it's basically like if you are going to university and you want to play football, you just have to go and try out for their team. Mm-hmm. And it's set up how it's set up. And then that's it. You just basically have to win with whoever's running it and you know what kind of structures they've got in place. Yeah, and it all ultimately ties into money, doesn't it? So yeah. as you say, we, we won't go into it too much now, but it's useful for people to listen to, to Mark's interview and just understand a little bit more how the process works in other yeah. countries and, what, and trying to compare what is essentially um, 
grassroots football in this country is almost like a service for people, isn't it? That people want to enjoy it. Yeah. It's not really limited to ability and, and, and age and, and things like that. So it needs to be accessible for people. Yeah, hugely. And I think, you know, just to wrap up, really, I think the system in America isn't perfect. And I think the pay-to-play model has got its flaws. And, we, you know, Joyce briefly touched on it. He didn't want to go into it too much for obvious reason. But I think that's that's... You know, we're not saying that that's the way that we should go about it, but I think Granite Town have adopt some of the things that they've taken up and some of the things that they've brought into their system that maybe we could do in this country. I certainly think is worth thinking about. Um, but yeah, we'll wrap us up there, Ryan. Thanks for your for your time this morning, mate. As usual, it was a it was a pleasure to record in person for the first time in, in a very long time. Yeah, yeah. So we're. Uh, Hopefully the roadmap continues <laughs> and uh, and we'll be back to doing this more regularly. Um, we'll be uh, we'll be back with you on on Friday. We've got another uh, episode of Under Flat Caps and Bowler Hats. That's with uh, Matthias Sindelar. Um, so that's one to look forward to. As usual, I'm going to just send you on to some uh, give you some signposting for some organisations that if you need to talk if you're struggling with your mental health. Um, we can ring Samaritans on their 24-7 phone line, which is 116123. And the same goes for Calm Zone. They've got a 5pm to midnight phone line, which is 0800 58 And before we hand you over to Mark's quick fire, remember that the purpose of Man Mark is to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. We've started that conversation today, but we're asking you to keep it going. Talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to your colleagues, even talk to strangers. But most important of all, remember to listen. And sometimes listening could save a life. So thanks for listening today. We'll hand you over to Mark's Quickfire and we'll see you on Friday. Uh, if you could bring one aspect of the American game to England, what would it be? Oh, I, I, I like, we didn't we didn't touch on it. And again, I, I won't go on too much. The, the high school soccer, when they go and play at their school, it is, it's unbelievable. They have people coming out and filling the stands and watching them play. They come out to their their intro music and the high five and each other on the way out. It is it's big. They put so much effort into it, and it's such a big thing for them. They'll go into school in the day. They're wearing the the training kit. It's it's game day. We've got a game tonight. We're playing our rival school. It's it's great for it's like competitive and and the, the kids buzz off it so we we don't have that here i think that would be a that it'll be a big thing to go on out for sure do you think the us will win a world cup in our lifetime no, oh, no. <laughs> i don't but i don't i don't think england will wayne rooney was playing for everton 16 these kids are in high school till 18 going to college till 21 you're then coming out of college getting drafted to go and play in a in a professional league, which is the MLS, um, the, the the infrastructure of US soccer is going to prevent them from from doing it. Hey, I hope they do. But have you ever been to a shooting range whilst in the US? No, I've never. I've never fired a gun, and to have to have lived in the US for seven years and not fired a gun is is bizarre. But um, I could have easily gone and done it, and it and it. I've gone round to families' houses and they've shown me their um, their array of firearms, but <laughs> no, never never done it. Is that why you've uh, become a lot less sarcastic when you're over there? So the parents don't pull the piece on me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> you're a massive Champions fan. We've spoken about that before, Mark. Um, yeah. 
how much do you miss going to the game every week? Yeah, I miss that. And I spoke to Ryan about it when I went to the game because he kind of talked about it. And he's like, well, you're, you're a coach. Do you look at... And I, I like to just go and kind of get excited when we have a corner and have a sing song <laughs> and just the, the stupid sides of going to the match as opposed to kind of breaking it down. But yeah, like I said, that I, I went to America and we've... We had back-to-back relegations. We had a, a a failed Wembley final. We had a successful Wembley final. We had a back-to-back promotion and another Wembley final. I missed. I missed so much. Obviously, being able to watch the games now on the iFollow and all that is 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 a little bit easier. But yeah, I, I miss it. I love getting home at Christmas time and being able to get to games. Favorite sporting memory? I think my my obvious answer would be probably Goodison and. Tramia going to Goodison and and winning three 0 there. Um, I took a I took an under sixteen boys team to a a regional tournament and there was there was twelve teams in it and it went over four days and we came we came out on top in that we were two one down in the final one three two. Um, yeah, a Tramia win at Goodison or maybe a little regional championship in in South Carolina. Favorite footballer of all time, Timothy Catalina. No, absolutely the cat. Absolutely not. Um I loved Ronaldo, the real Ronaldo, just in terms of power and strength and goal scoring. He was just he was just a different level and he was playing for the best country that we knew. And yeah, I suppose that would be the the obvious one. Um Big Ronaldo up top, or maybe a maybe a Kenny Irons or a Tramia. Yeah, 